Hello everyone, thanks for being here with us again. This is part three. If this is your first time, I'm on a search for La Santerre. Now I'm hoping you've worked that out by now that it's French and it's sort of code for the Holy Land, which is where pilgrims were headed and when asked that's how they described their journey as à la Santerre. Now I'm broadening the meaning to include holy ground because I'm not about to walk to Jerusalem, although sometimes it would be a nice relief to be out there somewhere. So the pursuit of holy ground, mostly in the Bible people weren't pursuing it at all. They came upon it, or it came upon them. A burning bush in a desert, a cleft in a rock on a mountain, a little quiet house in a village called Nazareth, some sort of animal shelter in Bethlehem, a hillside at night with a sheep, a star in an eastern sky, an upper room, a dusty road to Damascus, on it goes. And what about a living room in the suburbs of Belfast, BT8? What about an earphones while out walking? The search goes on. I love the sound of La Sonterre. Now it's not saint like a Belfast person said, but with a wee bit of French in there, Sonterre means to saunter, a gentle unforced meandering towards something that's not quite clear yet. So that's what we're doing, à la saunter, in pursuit of that holy place where revelation may be found. Let's listen. Thank you. <clears throat> My sauntering in this podcast may not have a defined destination and arrival point, so to speak, but it does have direction. I'm trying to find a place where sexuality in general and same-sex attraction in particular may find a resting place, a safe place, a welcoming place in the life of God's church. I'm keen to find this because we're talking about real people here. And we're also talking about ourselves who are already safely woven into the life of the church. And therefore we need to be shaken a little bit as to what it would feel like if you didn't think you could be woven into that life. But the doors have never been closed and sealed, so I'm in search of an understanding of God and our broad humanity and how the two can interact and how we as a church can reflect that interaction. Some will try to tell us that the situation is already clear and that there's no more discussion required. 
I don't think that can ever be the case on this subject or any other if there are still people searching and actually discovering new perspectives. So today, I'd like to present another perspective. Over the weeks ahead, these will grow in number, and I'm not daring to suggest that any one of these will settle a discussion, but it may bring it back to life a wee bit like blowing gently on the fading embers of a campfire to see if there's yet a bit more life in the whole thing. <coughs> Excuse me. This was inspired a wee bit this week by the horror stories on our news broadcasts about church-run orphanages and workhouses decades ago for young women and their children, young women, I suppose specifically, who weren't married. And somehow or other, it was our way to cover up or maybe even punish those women. Interestingly, we hardly ever punished the men. Suppose they were never guilty. That's strange thinking, sorry. That was uh, being a little bit sarcastic. And there was also probably an attempt to send out warning shots to others, an attempt to make sure that sexual sin was taken seriously. Unfortunately, sin wasn't the only thing at stake here. There are lives. Isn't it amazing how we often respond to what we consider sinful in another person or another group of people by committing sin against them? But somehow that's regarded as a good thing to do. So going back to our treatment of women and babies in these institutions, I think this was motivated probably by a theology of marriage and family life that was blended with a theology of sin and holiness and then completely distorted by a warped understanding of God's attitude to people that somehow validated a cruel program of punishment inflicted by the church. In some very distressing way, the people who inflicted this, and maybe even people who knew about it but did nothing about it, may have been motivated by somehow or other bizarrely thinking they were doing something good. But mostly, I think they were just being vindictive and cruel and covering it up with some sort of uh, idea of a godly attitude to sinfulness or something. It's hard to understand as we look back at it, but they must have had something going on in their heads. Surely today, whatever we think of marriage and of sexual activity, no matter how Victorian we, we may be in our thinking, surely we would never seek cruelty as the answer or the way to guide people. Our pastoral care of people has progressed beyond turning vindictive, cruel attitudes into programs and rules. Or has it? No matter what we think of marriage or family life or we children being born into single parent situations, surely we have a much healthier acceptance and a community spirit about us that wants only the best for mother, child and maybe even the absent father. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of one of these, you do it to me. And there's very, this is bad English, there's very little least or less than a tiny child. A la santerre, let's, let's just be still for a moment and listen again.
So what about homosexuality? That was a sudden leap into a different subject. I was talking to another minister a few months ago, and again, this has contributed to why I'm thinking like this today. Um, this person said that if it was only a pastoral consideration, they would have no problem at all with gay marriage, since that's the real crunch issue for the church. But that the difficulty was the theology and the scriptures. Now, we will get to those, we'll get to those in the weeks ahead. But first I'd like to take you to an interesting scriptural moment, which may give us a slightly different way of looking at this pastoral theological crisis. Now, I use the word crisis deliberately. It's a good word, and it comes straight out of New Testament Greek. And its original meaning in the New Testament was um, a turning point, or a place where a decision is made, or a judgment is passed. John 7.24, Jesus says, stop judging by appearances, but instead judge correctly. And the word for judging there is crisis, crisis. Right? Get to a place where you make good decisions. So let's rest now as if we're in a place of crisis. Ignoring the idea that a crisis is a place of panic and loss of control. Let's redeem it as a place for listening and thinking and the opening up of new possibilities. And Acts 15 was a crisis just like that. A crisis, a moment, a turning point. Some things had changed that brought about the story of Acts 15. The old systems of faith and practice carried on from the Old Testament Judaism were no longer fitting into what seemed to be God at work. Paul and Barnabas, now it's hard, not hard to believe that Paul was a bit headstrong. But anyway, they seem to have gone out of control on their journeys in Europe, telling all sorts of people about Jesus. They told this to women and to slaves and to Roman soldiers and to pagans and to people who sacrificed humans. And to give it a collective name, Gentiles, or specifically people who weren't Jewish. And to make matters worse, there seemed to be no intention among these people of ever becoming Jewish. No desire to adhere to the law of Moses. No desire for the men to be circumcised. And nothing of that magnetism of Jerusalem and its story. Clearly, this is a matter which needed a conference, a synod, a global summit. And Acts 15 is that gathering in Jerusalem. The two sides of the conversation went something like this. One, the new movement acknowledges Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah, but is nonetheless a continuation of Judaism, perhaps even a fulfilment of Judaism, a validation of Judaism. Therefore, all the patterns and agreed life practices must continue, and new believers from any background are very welcome but they need to buy into the whole deal, the law, the history, the patterns, and circumcision for the men. The argument from Paul at the other end of this was, the Messiah is the king of the world, and not confined nor expressed primarily by Judaism. Therefore, not only are Gentiles welcome in the Messiah's new movement, but they're free from the rigors of all previous movements. The message in its very essence is faith alone with no attachments. The Gentiles do not have to be subject to the Judaic traditions and patterns. 
The overwhelming evidence is that the gospel is taking root in this new context and in cultures outside Judaism, and this new development has to be addressed. Now this clearly is a crisis moment. It's a real future-defining moment for this messianic movement. Now, I think there are three considerations that are before us as we consider our situation. One, the situation around us has changed and is never going back. Homosexuality is no longer illegal. Same-sex marriage is now possible and is held equally with heterosexual marriage. And sorry, um, even the phrase uh, same-sex marriage, homosexual marriage, heterosexual marriage, that's all gone. There's just marriage. Homosexuality is increasingly seen and experienced all around us in normal life, in adverts, in TV shows, in theatre and art. So how do we respond to this developing situation, especially when it seems to rub awkwardly against what were our previously held theological positions on marriage and relationships? So that's the first thing. The situation has changed. It has brought us to a crisis point. Number two, the Jerusalem church, the headquarters of all things in terms of theology and practice, seem to be able to respond pastorally without having to respond theologically. They seem to be able to allow the two things to separate for a while. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't go on to think theologically, but they seem to be able to handle the pastoral situation as the primary situation. This is evidenced by Paul's letter to the Galatians, which details a scene years later, when no less a figure than Peter is still struggling with theology with the theology of faith alone. This is witnessed by his willingness when he comes to uh, Galatia to be part of the Gentile church there, joining in with everything that's going on and not insisting on any of the Old Testament law or circumcision or anything until some important people called Judaizers arrive in Galatia from Jerusalem. And he then distances himself from the Gentiles to return again to the previous held theological thinking and practice, which makes me think that not everyone has adopted yet the new pastoral practice, but some people are still struggling with the theology behind it. Now this is a very strange way for a senior leader and thinker to be behaving except that it shows that his understanding of how to treat people has actually got ahead of the debate in his head. Number three, the Jerusalem lot seem to have accepted that some sort of living with difference is possible. That there could be one church movement, but with quite different ways of understanding a crucial piece of theology and even a development that had the potential to cause the earlier thinking to dissolve and maybe even become irrelevant. Somehow they seemed to be able to hold these two things that looked like a contradiction of one another, but seemed to be able to hold them together within one body. I suppose the perspective on same-sex marriage that I'm throwing into the mix today is that the situation around us has changed. And people will say that culture should not dictate what we believe, and I agree. But there is a changed pastoral situation. Might it be that we could change how we behave? 
there are gay Christians and there are gay Christian marriages. I haven't met any yet, but there will be children of gay couples and therefore baptisms, confirmations, Sunday schools, parenting classes, marriage preparation classes, house groups, birthdays, funerals. These things are all, they're all around us and will become part of us. There is at very least a pastoral discussion about inclusion and welcome waiting to happen. Or sadly, maybe even passing us by. A couple of months ago, I conducted a funeral of a middle-aged man whom I had led to the Lord. I'm still a conservative evangelical, so that's the language I use. He was then confirmed by the bishop and died, sadly, maybe two years later. At his funeral, I introduced myself to a man I didn't recognise, but who was in the front row group at the funeral. And he told me that he and the deceased had been partners for over 20 years. Now what was it about us as a congregation and a church family that even a new believer in our midst did not feel able to tell us about one of the most important things in his life? Forgive me please. Anyone out there who still feels this pressure to keep your relationship secret from us. We will change. Can our pastoral practice get ahead of our theological discussions, even for a limited period of time? Is this possible? I think Acts 15 is our scriptural precedent for such an approach. Our pastoral practice may even begin to help us in our study of the scriptures and our search for God's heart. I am reminded of Jesus' risk-taking pastorally when every theologian around him cried out for his death and destruction, quoting scripture and history and tradition at every opportunity. Nonetheless, he embraced every new situation freely and warmly. Can we live with difference as they did in Jerusalem? If Peter's actions are in any way typical, living with difference is the key to beginning to explore. Years ago, someone talking to me about the nature of marital breakdown said that the one who was prepared to walk away from the marriage was the one who held all the power and the one who valued the relationship less. In any theological debate, both extremes must be first committed to the biblical idea of a body that cannot be separated. No side of any Christian discussion should be willing to hold the power of splitting the body as the threat over the discussion. That would be a denial of the very gospel that is the heart of this person to whom we have given our undying allegiance. There is no alliance in God's plan for the body of Christ to split or divide. St Paul even explicitly tells us that when one part of the the body hurts, the rest of the body must care for it. So to turn this into reality, it doesn't matter if you hate this stuff, this stuff that I'm trying to share with you, or if you love it, we are inextricably stuck together and are inseparable. So we need to find ways to have different perspectives and yet still be one, even if temporarily. So here is the answer to that. It's called grace and truth. The qualities that are embodied in the incarnate Christ of John chapter 1. Now we will come back to this phrase in another podcast and you may be amazed at what it means and what it could contain. But right right now, let's let grace and truth flow through every artery of this body, 
bringing life and energy from the heart to every extreme. So, going back to where we began with the horrors of inflicting pain on a group of single mums and their babies because it didn't fit with our tidy ecclesiology. Is there any way we could be displaying a similar attitude to people from the LGBT world, even if we're not actually locking them up? But could we be locking them out? Is this worthy of the one who has given us everything, including his own life? What might we be willing to give away for the sake of others? I think taking the risk of grace might be worth taking. And sure, if we're wrong, we can only be accused of showing too much love. Thanks for listening. We're going to go back to the Be Still for the Presence because that's a, that's a song that helps us in our search for La Santerre. See you soon. Thanks.